Hi, Vicky. Hi, Shane. What's your favorite planet? I, I don't know how we haven't talked about this before, considering what we do. Yeah, that seems like a real natural question. Do you um, have a favorite planet that's not Earth? It can't be Earth. So Besides Earth. like We live <laughs> besides here. Besides Earth. Right. So I have a favorite, yes, Pluto oh. has always been my favorite planet. Don't try to ask me things about Pluto because I know nothing about Pluto. But I think I always oh. related to it being like the furthest away and also like the smallest, like far away and small. And now nobody likes it and it's not a planet anymore, right? You just so, came full circle on that whole thing. I was going to say, do you know, what? you don't know much about it, it considering that it's oh. actually not considered a planet anymore. <laughs> no, but it'll always be a planet to me. Yeah. I, so that's funny. I think Pluto is up there for me again, even though it's, it's considered by most not technically a planet. I, I don't traditionally think a ton about space. I've always, I, yeah. Jupiter's kind of neat, but that's mostly because a lot of science fiction, realistic science fiction, that's not quite the word for it, but takes place around Jupiter because of all the moons. It's this idea, oh, if there's life, it might be on some of Jupiter's moons or things like that. So I think that's interesting. And then there's from the time of me being, I don't know, 10 to mm -hmm. maybe now, a special place in my heart for Uranus. Uranus. I just can't, I can't tell you why. There's just something about it. I, it's, Uranus. It's, it's, <laughs> maybe that's it. <laughs> Uranus? I've never heard someone say it that way. I, this is, okay, we're going to, we're going to, we're, we're going to figure this out. The actual, I thought, because that's a thing. People laugh about the pronunciation of it, yeah. but I always thought we just pronounced it wrong. And that's why, that's why people would laugh. It's like, oh, this isn't actually how you pronounce it. You pronounce it this other way. Oh, maybe I'm wrong there. We'll we'll do some digging and and we'll we'll get some facts okay. on this podcast. A little <laughs> offline googling, <laughs> right? Science is fascinating, but don't just take my word for it. Join us as we hear stories from scientists for everyone. I'm Shane Hanlon, and I'm Vicky Thompson, and this is Third Pod from the Sun. All right, Vicky. So we did, I did some very important research. Okay. Uh, and turns out there is still disagreement on it. Uh, <laughs> what what I could find and- We can't agree on anything. Well, so what I could find is that it should be, and traditionally and historically was Uranus. And, right. but because of, there were some really well-known and media events, like there were missions to Uranus and basically folks- got tired of people like me giggling about sure. it. And so there was this shift to Uranus to mm. prevent literally me from being me uh, in my <laughs> adolescence. And so I believe, and I'm, I, please don't add us. I'm probably wrong. You're probably right. Like, but that's, that's the confusion. So, or confusion on my part, I will own all of this. If, if I am, the one who's in the wrong, I apologize to the space community, but here we are. We just say it's your Pennsylvania accent. Oh, we could do that. All right, let's go mm -hmm. with that. It's it's my my Yinzer, not quite Yinzer accent. So, but beyond loving the opportunity to be an adolescent boy, we are talking about planets for a reason, but not any of the ones we've mentioned. We're talking about Venus. What do you think about Ooh. Venus? I've always liked Venus. Does oh. Venus is Venus cloudy? 
Venus is cloudy, yes. Okay. Well, I've always liked Venus because it starts with a V. Oh. And Vicky starts with a V. That makes sense. Yeah. I don't know a ton about Venus, but our, our guest today does, among numerous other things. So let's just get into it. Our interviewer was Jason Rodriguez. So I'm Gael Cascioli. I work for University of Maryland, Baltimore County, and NASA Goddard Space Flight Center. I'm a planetary scientist, actually, by, I'm an aerospace engineering by training. Uh, we, we can talk about it later, but mm. uh, right now I'm a planetary scientist. In particular, I focus on planetary geodesy. That is the task of measuring the gravity field and the shape of a planet. Well, I'm just back from a two-week field campaign in Iceland with a JPL-led mission, Veritas, that is set up to, to fly to Venus in the next years. And we were there to characterize lava flows and to calibrate our synthetic aperture radar that we will fly. It is, um, let's say, a mock-up or a very similar device uh, with respect to the one that we will fly on Venus. So we were there flying the, the airplane with the radar on it, and we were on the ground trying to get the ground truth for these radar measurements in order to calibrate the instrument. And that, that was really exciting because, you know, it's getting a little outside of the usual routine of waking up, going to the office, turning on the computer. In that case, I was we were in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of Iceland, and it was really exciting, I must say. And it's a JPL-led mission with collaboration from the Italian Space Agency, the German Space Agency, and the French Space Agency, uh, which is set up to launch in the next years. I, we, we don't have a launch date yet, but it will be around the 2030s. And uh, we are going to orbit Venus for the first time. Uh, a NASA mission will orbit Venus after Magellan that was in 1994, 1998, yeah. more or less. And we are really excited because this, this will be an amazing mission that will gather foundational data to really understand better uh, the Earth's twin planet. So the basic idea of Veritas is to provide the most updated and most detailed mapping of the surface of Venus that we have until now and also to understand what are the physical processes on the planet itself. Because one thing that is not clear until now, one of the many things, there are many questions, I can speak for hours about this, but one of the things that we don't understand is that the surface of Venus is relatively young, mm. but until now, no tectonic processes have been observed. So mm. the question is, how does this work? We don't know, uh, how is it possible that this, this surface is so young without active tectonic processes. So this is one of the things that we want to observe. And indeed, the radar will do uh, the so-called repeat pass interferometry. So it will pass exactly over the same patch of ground a few times. Uh -huh. And so we can compare the radar images one with the other and observe change detection to a fairly high level, uh, level of accuracy. Mm -hmm. So that will give us the idea of, is there something moving? Is there some tectonic process going on? And also other questions that we want to, to, to answer, for example, regard, are, are regarding the um, uh, rotational motion of Venus. Because Venus is, a, a, I mean, a very curious object because it's very similar to the Earth in terms of dimension, surface gravity, the distance from the sun, of course, is different, but it's not that different because mm. the Earth is at one astronomical unit, Venus is at, po is at 0.7. So it's not that much of a difference to justify the fact that Venus is rotating in the opposite sense. 
And so the sun, instead of rising east, rises west. And so th this is something interesting. We don't know why that happens. And also there is another thing that is happening that, you know, all the planets, all the planetary bodies eventually end up in the so-called tidally locked state. So every planet is not completely symmetric. They're all, I'll show it this way, a little bit, you know, squished, let's say. <laughs> yeah. They have a bulge. This bulge eventually, over millions, millions and billions of years, tends to align with the central body. So in this case, the sun. Mm. For the case of Venus, if you do the full computation, you would see that the its period of rotation, if in a resonant state, that is the one that I just described with the sun and the earth, should be a number. Now that we have precise measurements of its rotational state, we see that it's slightly off that, but constantly slightly off that. And we don't have a clear explanation yet about why that's happening. There are mm. several theories and we want to test them. One of these is that Venus has a very thick atmosphere, very dense atmosphere. And this is this has strong winds in it. It is rotating with respect to the planet. And this is due, among other effects, to the fact that Venus is a slow rotator. So the phase that is sunlit and the phase that is not sunlit, that is in shade, have very different temperatures. So you have different densities of the atmosphere. And so you have a, a rearranging of the atmospheric mass. This creates a torque that is in the opposite direction of the torque that would like to stabilize the rotation of Venus. So the idea is that this is the effect that actually keeps Venus in a non-resonant state, but we actually think it could be that. We don't have a, a conclusive uh, argument for that. And so this is one of the things that we will measure, and I'm really excited to, excited to measure with Veritas in the future, in the short-term future. And of course, there are many, many, many other questions that we want to answer, but I don't want to you know, <laughs> that. So here's my question. Why should we care about Venus? Well, I mean, Venus is a very important planet that most certainly can show us insights into okay, things like... stop. You have no idea what you're talking about. I have no idea. No. But <laughs> I know someone who does. <laughs> so in the wider field, Venus is a, a, a key piece in the jigs of, of understanding rocky planets. Mm. Because, you know, in our solar system, we have Mercury, Venus, Earth, and Mars as rocky planets, and that's all. And so we need to gather as much information as possible on rocky planets, for example, to understand also what is happening outside our solar system. Indeed, Venus is defined often as the exoplanet in our backyard, mm. because it is indeed in terms of dimensions and shape and temperature is very similar to many exoplanets that we are observing right now. So, and we have it in our backyard. I mean, it's here. It's very fast. Going there, it takes just, just six months that, you know, in space travel is like nothing. Yeah. So we can go there almost whenever we want. And we want to understand it way better because, you know, it has the same shape as the Earth, but it's extremely different. Mm. So this is why we want to study it very well to characterize and try to understand where does this diversity come from and possibly, you know, apply this understanding also to, to exoplanets, of which we just know, you know, very few information in general, temperature, atmospheric composition, dimension and distance from the star. And if you were to look only at those parameters, many of these would match from, for the Earth and Venus. Not, of course, the temperature and the composition, but many of those would match. So we want to understand, you know, what is it that gives you this broad spectrum in within the same dimension shape and more or less the same distance from the central star. 
does does that answer your question? Yeah, I think it does, but I don't know that I knew Venus was a rocky planet. Honestly, same. Uh, I know that it's not a gas giant, duh, but for some reason... <laughs> duh. I, uh, but in my mind, we talked about a cloudy. In my mind, for some reason, I had in mind that they were similar somehow. Wow. Yeah. That's, yeah, I guess, look at us. Always learning something new. Yeah, yeah, we we, yeah. we really appreciate that. Thanks, Gail. But even as skilled and knowledgeable as he is, you know, even he messes up sometimes, right? Well, I mean, many times because you know you always find a bug in your code. It always uh... happens, right? And sometimes you catch it early. Sometimes you catch it a little bit too late. And once in particular, I, I caught one of my bugs a little bit too late. But luckily, I mean, with f- pulling a few all-nighters. Everything was all right, but you know it required a lot of effort. Hmm. Uh, we were working for Veritas, and we were finalizing the, the last step of the decision process, NASA's decision process, to select and then launch the mission. Yeah. Where at the end we had to to file the final report, and I had to like compute some numbers from simulations. And while they were just finalizing the report, I was going through my code again just to check it, and I found a pretty significant bug meaning that all the results that I had at that point were not correct. Luckily, you know, I, I spent many hours without sleeping, but I fixed it and I'm just in work. So Shane, have you ever coded? You know, I would certainly not call myself a coder, no. Uh, The closest I ever got was with stats programs when I was a researcher. And I can certainly sympathize from painful personal experience of messing up a small part of the code and it just ruining everything else. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. I remember... I remember talking about R, I think. We were talking about R, right? Yes. yes. Yeah. R um, was the bane. I liked it when it worked, but was the bane of my existence when it didn't. Yeah. So you probably weren't really like proud of your of yourself when you messed everything up, huh? <laughs> no, 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 I was not. No, but I bet uh Gael's proud of some things that he worked on. And I mean in general also things that I'm proud of is, you know, uh, having set up collaborations with people coming from so many different fields and also personal relationships. That's, that's what I like because you, you know, you can have a, a very satisfactory professional collaboration without, you know, uh, interpersonal, uh, let's say, uh, closeness, sure. but you can also have the opposite. And sometimes, you know, the best collaborations that I had were with people that I really care about in general, you mm. know, as friends or, you know, like scientific friends, let's call them that, that way. And that, that's something that I really appreciate about this field, this line of work. You get to know a lot of people from all different walks of life. And, you know, you, you also get to know very different cultures. And as I told you at the beginning, first thing I said, I'm a curious person. So that's, you know, perfect <laughs> for me. <laughs> Teamwork makes the dream work, Vicky. That uh, your silence is just deafening. Well, it just made me think. I've I've said that before out loud in like a real situation and was faced Earnestly? with. Earnestly. Yeah, and was faced with <laughs> blinking silence. So anyway, so. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so 
I just felt completely flat on that. But anyway, back to business. Back to business. Back to business. I was wondering what some of these collaborations and professional relationships really look like. I was at one of my first conferences. I was presenting a poster. Mm. And so this guy comes to me with, and he had his name tag covered, so I couldn't read the name. And I was like, oh, well, I like, I like your poster, blah, blah, blah. But let's talk about something else. Uh, if you were to add the ability of deciding the next mission, where would you send it? I was like, oh, I think that, you know, Triton, the, um, the moon of Neptune is very interesting because, you know, I don't know if you know, it could host a subsurface ocean. Mm. And so he stops and he looks at me and he's like, do you know who I am? I go, no. <laughs> <laughs> and it was actually Christian Kurana, which was one of the folks involved in discovering the, the subsurface ocean on the Galilean moon. So I was like, okay, <laughs> yeah, sorry. I should have seen that coming, but I didn't know that. So <laughs> that was interesting because it was, of course, totally fine. Yeah, yeah. About it, but at the moment I was like, oh no, again. <laughs> So has that ever happened to you at a conference? It hasn't, but mostly because I just try not to talk to people. <laughs> <laughs> I feel the same way at conferences, actually. Yeah, but, this is this is my preferred medium, frankly. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm outgoing, but not. <laughs> right. You're an extroverted introvert. I, well, that's what I am. Nope, that's what I am. Yeah. Yep, yeah. Well, anyway, given his success and awkward interactions, do you think he ever thinks about doing something different? So uh, I think... I love education policy, oh. higher education policy. I was quite a bit involved uh, as much as I could in Italy, back in Italy. And that's a field that I really care about. That's something that really needs to be, you know, the whole system in Italy, for example, but I'm sure many other countries needs to be reformed. And that's something that I really, you know, care about, strongly care about. And I have strong ideas about that. What drives that that sort of those strong beliefs in in this policy education policy? I I think that you know I I got so much from the university mm. in general, both as a professional and both uh, as a person. That and, and you know I, I always been since high school involved in school politics somehow. Mm. So I, I saw that you know there is possibility for change, even if it's small. Yeah. it's very small. But there is always possibility for change. If you want to do something, you know, you have a strong idea, you think that that way of teaching something or that way of evaluating students is, you know, not optimal, you can work uh, with that. And I've seen, uh, I've got to know very, very good teachers along my career yeah. that were extremely involved in that. And, you know, sometimes they had to sacrifice their like research career to be in committees, to write down proposals for changing, you know, the order of the lessons or, you know, uh, to propose new projects or new ideas for new courses and so on. And I mean, their commitment, commitment for me was so, I don't know, I don't even know the word. It was so important to the community and so underrepresented uh, to the outside. Mm. You know, many other professors that were just, you know, focused on, Research, research. And yeah, I have to teach, but just because I, I'm forced to, it's not my passion. They, they tended to dismiss these other sure. teachers because, you know, yeah, yeah, they're just wasting their time. They like being important or whatever. Yeah. But actually, I, I've witnessed with my, my own eyes through change. And, you know, we as a committee of students went to those people and said, you know, 
this thing is not working mm-hmm. at all. And after talking for a few weeks, they understood our real struggle and they actually worked so hard to change it. And it changed. And talking with the younger students the, the years after, they could really, I mean, they had this change and something changed for them. So, and I, I've came across, I've come across many people that, you know, told me, oh, but why are you doing this? Never, nothing will ever change. I mean, you're not the minister of education or whatever. You know, there is always space to change. There's yeah. always room to change. And I think it's something, at least in the system where I come from, it's mainly based on voluntary people, just people that love it, that have a strong passion for it and do it just for the sake of doing it because you're not rewarded. You're not paid. You're yeah. not, you know, sometimes people hate you because you're doing that because you're, you know, messing their, their routine. Yeah. And so I think that's something that, that really needs to be picked up, but it needs to be, to be done by people that, you know, care about it, not people that do it because they get a salary out of it. Yeah. So I, I, I'd love to do that. just a powerful thought and i was wondering if it influenced how he thinks about science now i would say that from a cultural standpoint i think that you know it's in some work environments Mm. too much focus is put on productivity so sometimes you know you publish just you know publish or perish right that that whole (laughs) philosophy yeah and that is, you know, that has a lot to do. And this is why I come back to, you know, to higher education, because in some countries, that's the way of, you know, evaluating teachers, mm. which is counterintuitive. You need to teach, right? Yeah. So I should evaluate it, evaluate you on your teaching skills, yeah. not on your age index or number of citations. So that's something that, you know, in, I think if you don't pay attention to that, and if you don't work in a work environment that doesn't really care about that, mm. And I must say, I mean, where I'm right now, I, I feel that, you know, I, I'm not pressured at all about my numbers, but in other, I know very well other work environments where the numbers define you, right? Yeah. And so in that case, you end up, instead of publishing one groundbreaking, amazing research that takes three or four years, you split it, you know, in several different little things. And it also doesn't give you the time to, to do high risk research. Because that, that's you know an issue. I, I want to do, let's say, high risk research. That means that if I get to the final goal that I was thinking, this will be really groundbreaking. But we need to account for the fact that maybe this funding for four years will be you know just lost because it is a high risk research. Mm. And in some environment, this is this has been the incentive not favored mm. because of productivity, right? Because universities get funded in ba- based on their numbers, on their productivity numbers. So, of course, I under- also understand the head of a department saying, you know, you can't spend four years on one paper because, yeah, that's good for science, but that's not good for business, you know? Uh, I mean, I understand yeah. that. It's not the fault of the people that, you know, apply the rules. It's the fault of the rules themselves. Yeah. So this is why I strongly feel about a change in the, the overall philosophy of higher education and higher research. So is this how you feel about academia? As an independent individual, not affiliated with any organization, 100% yes. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) My personal opinion, let's say. 
You were like, this is not my legal advice. All of my tweets are my own. Yeah, that's, that was that version. Yeah, put yeah. Uh, put that in my, in my um, I was going to say Twitter profile, X oh, profile, whatever. Oh, it's not Twitter, yeah. But if you uh. type in twitter.com, it takes you to, it takes you there, so. Well, that's just good business. That is a good redirect. But yeah. seriously, he definitely does have a point. Yes, we want to get science out there, but we want to get good science out there. And right. I think there's definitely a balance there. And that's, and frankly, that's probably a, a great place to end for us. So with that, that is all from Third Pod from the Sun. Special thanks to Jason Rodriguez for conducting the interview and to NASA for sponsoring the series. This episode was produced by me with audio engineering from Colin Warren and artwork by Karen Romano-Young. We'd love to hear your thoughts, so please rate and review us and you can find new episodes on your favorite podcasting app or at thirdpodfromthesun.com. Thanks all, and we'll see you next week. Uranus. I thought that was the way that someone said it when they didn't want to say Uranus. See, this is what we're going to find out. Also, I feel like I was making so many faces while you were talking about realistic science fiction on Jupiter. Like, please, come on. I'm, hold on. I'm looking up a YouTube video. Uranus. Uranus. On, On how to pronounce Uranus.